how can you lose? But predicting the rapture may be a different thing. In light of the enthusiastic speculation that is brewing in some circles, I was asked to address the recent hype surrounding the blood moon. Let me do so by answering three questions about the issue. What is a blood moon? A blood moon or a blood red moon is the, same, is the name used to describe the reddish hue that occurs when we have a lunar eclipse in which the earth passes between the sun and the moon, causing the moon to have a reddish appearance. When you have four blood moons in a relatively short time, uh, period of time, it is called a tetrad, four. Since the birth of Christ, tetrads have occurred about 50 times, but sometimes these tetrads correspond with the major Jewish feast days, and that is something that has only happened 10 times in 2,000 years. Since 1492, there have apparently been only three times when a tetrad has corresponded to Jewish feast days, 1493 and 4, 1949 and 50, and 1967-68. This current tetrad, 2014 and 15, marks the fourth. This tetrad will culminate on the blood moon that will occur on September 27 and 28, 2015. It's today and tomorrow. Why, secondly, why do some people say blood moons are significant? Some have suggested that these tetrads, when they correspond to Jewish feast days, mark major events in the eschatological timeline, especially with regard to the nation of Israel. For example, the nation of Israel... Uh, Oh, he, there's a typo here. It is important for Christians to exercise biblical discernment and care rather than blindly jumping on a bandwagon of fanciful speculation. Uh, Israel was constituted a nation on May 14, 1948, just prior to that tetrad of 49 and 50. And the city of Jerusalem was reunited by Israeli forces in 1967, during the 67-68 tetrad. Based on these past events, there is speculation that this current tetrad will signal another major event for Israel and the world, perhaps even marking the time of the rapture and the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Proponents of these views tie their predictions into biblical prophecies about the moon turning to blood. He references Joel 2, Acts chapter 2, Revelation chapter 6. Third question, how should Christians think about blood moon speculation? With these kinds of predictions, it is important for Christians to exercise biblical discernment and care rather than blindly jumping on a bandwagon of fanciful speculation. At least two primary concerns come to mind regarding these blood moon predictions. First, these speculations are being fueled by astronomical, even astrological data and not by biblical data. When Joel 2, Acts 2, Revelation 6 speak about the moon turning to blood, those passages are describing something that will far exceed the temporary reddish hue caused by a relatively common lunar eclipse. Blood moons have occurred many times throughout history, but the eschatological events that mark the day of the Lord will be unmistakably unique. 
Those biblical passages also talk about the sun being darkened and other cosmic phenomena taking place, such as the stars falling from the sky. Again, the language of Scripture depicts something far more dramatic than a normal lunar eclipse. We might also note that Revelation 6.12 associates the moon turning to blood with the sixth seal of God's judgment during the tribulation period. Thus, it is a phenomenon that occurs after the tribulation begins, not before it. And second, I am reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 36, where he said of his second coming that no man knows the day or the hour. In light of that pronouncement, end-time date-setters and those who listen to them ought to proceed with extreme caution. The Lord similarly warns the apostles in Acts 1, 7, when they asked when he would bring in the kingdom, that it was not for them to know the times and the seasons which the Father has established. Throughout church history, there have been many who have embarrassed themselves and tarnished their Christian testimony by trying to predict certain future events, especially with regard to the return of Christ in the end of the age. Those who are promoting this blood moon speculation would do well to heed those same lessons. And finally, it is important to note that when the New Testament talks about the end of the world in places like 2 Peter 3, it urges believers to respond not by creating fanciful date-setting schemes, but rather by walking in holiness and hope, knowing that one day our Lord will return and will, pre and will present this world system uh, which will be destroyed. And this world system will be destroyed. Scripture teaches that Christ's return will be according to God's perfect timetable, not ours. In the meantime, we are to walk in faithfulness as we eagerly anticipate his return. And with that anticipation in mind, we gladly say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. So I think that was a good synopsis of what's going on right now. And uh, I've heard a lot of questions like that. And it's kind of amazing to me, uh, of course, you know, what are the chances that the rapture will return at some significant time like that? I don't know. I, I don't do in probabilities, but I'm sure it's, it's awfully high. Uh, or, on the other hand, whenever Jesus comes, it probably corresponds to something <laughs> that's going on in the world. So, you know, uh, we ought to be careful not to predict and so forth. These blood moons, the, the reason why, uh, again, as he pointed out in here, Israel became a nation in 1948, and that was closely associated with one of those tetrads, the four blood moons in a row. Then in 1967, the Three Days War, Seven Days War, what was that? Uh, that that uh, where Israel uh, gained its uh, gained the city of Jerusalem and other land. They, there was a tetrad during then too. So they're they're saying that well, now we're at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement, and the fall of the year. Here's another blood moon. It's the fourth. And so surely some big event like that is going to happen. Of course, if that would be the case, you wouldn't know whether that's the rapture or World War III, would you? I mean, you know, a big event like that uh, could be negative or positive. So, and yet I like the fact that he pointed out those kinds of astrological things have nothing to do with eschatological things, that is, biblical prophecies necessarily, okay? Um, uh, you're welcome to take a look at this, even make a copy of it, but I'd be glad to attach it to an email too, 
and, and send it to you if you'd like to have it. It's just kind of a nice synopsis. Okay. Tonight, we will go outside after the service because at about 8 o'clock, the, the moon is beautiful and it will begin to darken. You'll see a, a lunar eclipse, which are pretty fantastic, uh, happening over the next two nights. The moon was full and bright this morning, but by tonight, that eclipse will begin. So, And uh, you can look around, see if anything else is happening if you want to. All right. Okay, I want you to be turning in your Bibles to Exodus, book of Exodus, chapter 28. And here's what I'm going to do over the next few weeks. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the alphabet. Alphabet soup. An alphabet series, I'll call it. And that is, uh, I'm going to speak on a, ver a variety of different subjects, not necessarily related to one another, and we're going to do it alphabetically, and so today's lesson is on art, A-R-T. Not a person, but an occupation, a thing called art. And next week, we may do Bible. I thought about behavior and things like that. And we will go through ABC and do 26 lessons, if I'm still around by then. That's a long time, 26 lessons, when you think about it. Um, Although I, I think I might, I don't know what I'll do with Q, maybe quantum or something, you know. I don't know what I'll do with X, Y, and Z either. Quit? <laughs> Is that what you said? <laughs> quick. Oh, okay. The quick and the dead. Okay. I want to, uh, an interesting, uh, some interesting thoughts to me about art. It's something that, that, um, I, you know, I've never been an artiste, as they say. I've never been an artist myself in, this, in the classical sense of being able to draw or paint. Some of you do, or do it in different ways. But actually, I'm going to say we'll, we're all artists. We'll, we're all God's artists, and we need to realize that. Uh, though, again, I don't have particular skills in, in certain arts. I have skills and other things that that I do and so do you um, so uh, let's look at a, a two verses actually in Exodus 28 and begin there if you will Exodus 28 verse 2 well let me read verse 1 take time take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother speaking to Moses of course and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister unto me in the priest's office Aaron Nadab and his children, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And here's the verse. For thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother. Notice these two words, for glory and for beauty. You make something, and when you make it, make it for glory and for beauty. Now, let your eyes skip all the way down to verse 40 of the same chapter. When he gets all done describing these garments, he says, And for Aaron's sons, thou shalt make coats, thou shalt make for them girdles and bonnets. <laughs> Sounds funny, doesn't it? And shalt make for them, for what? Glory and for beauty. For glory and for beauty. Let me introduce a few thoughts here. We, we basically make a living in this world with two means. One is a, the means of nature, and that means we have natural resources. And, of course, what we understand as Christians 
is that God gave us these natural resources. He made this world and everything that's in it, and he made us. And so uh, we, we have things to work with, things to put our hands to and do something with. Secondly, then, we have a means of creativity so that God built into us specifically more than the animals, the an although, you know, the birds make their nests, the animals, you know, can do wonderful things, and they do marvelous things when you, when you study them, but nothing like man can do. So God has put in us that creativity in his own image to take his natural resources and to do things with them. And so when you combine the, the means of nature with the means of creativity, you have art. You have work. So Adam was put in a garden and told to work and create what he created, which was a beautiful garden. So he had to work at it. So in this sense, in the sense I think we should see it, even if it was a guy making the clothes for the high priest, or if it's a guy later building the ark and making the curtains and making the rods and making the furniture, all of this was supposed to be done by taking God's resources and putting your hand to them and having a product that is for glory and for beauty. Number one, it brings God glory. Number two, it's done well. And in everything that we do, we strive for those two things. Sometimes we exceed more than in one than in the other. Here's an interesting little uh, uh, piece of information, too. Um, have you ever read Dante's book called The Inferno? I don't know if you, you know, Dante's Divine Comedy. Uh, I know that you knew him. He lived in 1265 to 1321 in Florence, Italy. And he was a poet. He was a Christian man. And uh, he wrote a book about hell called The Inferno. It was part of the Divine Comedy uh, series, so to speak. So, and I read it. And, and, and you ought to read it. it. It's really amazing. As a matter of fact, it's kind of convicting. Uh, he did believe there were degrees of punishment in hell. And for various different sins, you would be punished more. So Dante talks has a walk through hell and he has to go down seven circles and as he goes down deeper the sins get worse until he gets to the seventh circle of hell and there below that is satan being punished and so forth well in that seventh circle to him the 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 worst of the worst are those who have committed violence and he, had, and he names three kinds. The first is violence against God, which would be blasphemy and those kinds of things. Blasphemy against God himself. To look right in God's face and to deny your very maker and blaspheme your very maker or accuse him. To Dante, that deserved the lowest circle of hell, violence against God. The other was violence against nature. And one of the things he mentions, by the way, is sexual perversion, because even as Paul says in Romans 1, that is against nature. And we have a lot of that today. But the third area of violence that he names is violence against art. <laughs> and I'm reading that and I think, that's, that's funny. 
against nature, against God, and against art. Now, but you got to remember, in those days, people didn't think of art so much like we do of some guy painting a picture over here on an easel. They thought of, you have work to do with your hands, and if you don't do it properly before God, it is a grievous sin. So, usury, that is unjust interest, where you, you basically charge someone unjustly to use their money, you make a profit and he gets hurt by it, was one of the things that he, he named. Uh, extortion, fraud, things like this. As a matter of fact, he says in that, making a profit without making a product. You're not an artist if you do that. And it's fraud, he saw. I have a little quote. It may, I'll try to make sense of it. It, it, it. This kind of old writing is hard to read sometimes. Nature, if thou well recall, how Genesis begins, man ought to get his bread and make prosperity for all. But the answer contrives a third way yet, and in herself and in her follower, art, scorns nature, for his hope is elsewhere set. In other words, not to make something to profit this world and to profit your neighbor, but simply for you to gain yourself and no one else. So, interesting, isn't it? Do you know that artists in, in, for centuries never signed their work? They didn't put their name on it. I'm, th I'm talking about an artist like Michelangelo or someone who, who would paint like that because they saw what they were doing as the same as what the stonemason was doing over here or the carpenter or the shipbuilder over there. They work. They go to work. They do their work well. They go home that day. They don't put their name on it. I, I don't know if you do that when you drywall your house. Do you write your name on the backside of the drywall just in case somebody takes it off someday and, and knows who did it? Of course, I don't because I never want anyone to know who did it, but uh, so old artists like that didn't do it. As a matter of fact, they just thought they were plying their craft, and that's all. You know, we've seen a certain evolution of this in songwriting and in Christian literature, whereas you can go back not even 100 years, but all before that, songs weren't copyrighted. The songwriters didn't care if you were going to use their music. Praise the Lord. They wrote a song, and if you use it, great. Nowadays, you know, you read a new song in a songbook, and there's 14 lines of copyright warnings at the bottom of it. Don't you dare touch this without giving me a profit. And now even with books, uh, you read the older books, here they are. And, and even the older writers would write and hardly footnote, which I think footnoting has been good. But now... You open a new book, and there's a large paragraph in the front of the book that says, if you ever quote from this, other than in a scholarly work where you footnote it, and use this in any electronic way or reproduction way, you are subject to me suing your ears off, because I'm going to do it. And, well, not in so many words, but I mean, you know, the threat is there. So in the old days, they didn't necessarily do that. Uh, if I have time, uh, here are just a few facts from history. Aristotle thought that writing tragedy was the highest art form. If you could write and, ex and excite people or move people to do good things, it's the highest art form. Edgar Allan Poe 
said the quickest route to beauty is to move a person by melancholy spirit, <laughs> which he did a lot, you know. But in other words, motivating somebody to do something. Augustine, and I'm summarizing him, put it this way. A Christian may manifest poor verse though he's attempting to glorify God. So, so if, I, if I gave you an assignment as a class and I said, okay, your assignment for next week is to write a poem about God, and I'm going to read them. And so you go home and you struggle with three or four lines and you try to write a poem about God and I read them. What would we be reading next week? Would we be, <laughs> would we be reading, uh, you know, a John Newton type of a poem? I doubt it. But does it glorify God? If you tried to do your best to glorify God, it does. It's for glory. Is it for beauty? Eh, maybe that lacks a little bit, see? But then, Augustine said, a sinner may manifest God by beautiful verse or beautiful work, but glorifying God is not there at all. He has no intention of glorifying God. Rembrandt uh, combines form and content in art. Bach combines form and content in music. You and I kind of do one or the other or neither very well. You know, we have a lot of what's today called Christian kitsch. Kitsch, K-I-T-S-C-H, is like trinkets. So, you know, when you stop at Flying J Truck Stop when you're driving and go into that lobby where they have racks and racks of trinkets, <laughs> you know, that's kitsch. We have a lot of Christian kitsch. In fact, you can buy it almost anywhere. You can get it online. It's not worth much, but there might be some value. Somebody's trying to glorify God by making a little cross or whatever. But aesthetically, piece of plastic. You know, it's not much. Uh, and a lot of times our house is filled with Christian kitsch. <laughs> you know, not worth a whole lot, but we try to make it uh, look nice. Or consider this. Let's, take, let's go to our Sunday school class and ask our little nursery workers or our three, three- and four-year-old kids to draw a picture of Jesus. And so they're going to get their crayons and a piece of paper. They're going to draw a picture of Jesus. Now, you have in your mind what that picture looks like, right? But then let's, let's ask, um, you know, uh, Rembrandt to paint a picture of Jesus, which he's done. Now, let's put the two together and ask, which is more beautiful? <laughs> and aesthetically, Rembrandt, of course, there's no equaling what he did. But if we, that's for beauty. But if we say for glory, which one is greater? You can't say that Rembrandt's is greater, although he was evidently a Christian man. But that, what that little three-year-old tried to do on that piece of paper is glorifying God as much as a three-year-old can, whereas Rembrandt was glorifying God as much as Rembrandt could. And they're equal in that regard. Now, you know, if, if I had said rather than Rembrandt, let's say Hollywood, and I said, you know, here's this three-year-old picture, a three-year-old's picture, and then Hollywood makes a movie. You know, the, the crazy thing about Hollywood today and, and, that, and theater and so forth is, it's truly amazing what they can do with film these days. 
As a matter of fact, it's pretty amazing what you can do on your own phone these days. The pictures you can take and how you can crop them if you want, how you can change them if you want. I mean, Hollywood can make something look so real, and it's not real at all. Have you ever been watching like one of these commercials or something, and you... You're listening to somebody talk, and then you kind of take a double take, and you look at it, and it's not a real person at all. It's an image of a person, you know. So what Hollywood can do as far as aesthetics cannot be equaled by a three-year-old's picture. But the glory that that three-year-old's trying to bring to God cannot be equaled by all that Hollywood can do with their techniques. Okay, so that's kind of, uh, of what we're talking about here, okay? Now... Um, another note, too. God doesn't make things. God has made the world. But I mean by this, God doesn't make music. I've heard people say, for example, oh, that's God's music. No, it's not. It's your music. Maybe good, maybe bad. God doesn't make music. God has made sound possible. And you can go over there on that piano and hit a note and say, well, that's middle C, for example. But that's not music yet. That's just sound. What you do with all of those different keys either makes good music or bad music. God doesn't, God doesn't make boats. God doesn't make ships. But God makes the material that you make ships out of. And so the material is there. One man may make a ship that floats, and another man may make a ship that can't float at all. From the same material. God doesn't make things. We make those kinds of things. Ships, cars, houses, pictures. As a matter of fact, I got convicted about this. Preaching. God doesn't do that. We have to do it witnessing even the angel said to peter to cornelius i'm not going to give this message to you you got to go find peter and he'll give it to you and i thought about that for a minute and i thought that is why false preaching is condemned by god in the way it is or why a preacher or a teacher of god's word is warned how that we might be under greater judgment from god and I think here's one of the reasons. If, if you are a ship maker, you have trees to work from or steel to work from. I have the only perfect natural uh, uh, supply, and that is God's Word. I have the most perfect natural... Uh, uh, what, what's the word I'm trying to think? Uh, Resource, thank you. The, the, the natural resource, God's word that is perfect, and I'm trying to preach it. Whatever I do isn't going to be as good as a natural resource. But it has to be done. I have to make it. I have to make a sermon. And really, whatever we make from the wood of the tree isn't as beautiful as God's tree. But we have to do it. Okay? So... As a matter of fact, I thought, does God even make sound? Well, then I thought, I, I get, how would you answer that? I, I kind of have to answer it, 
No, but he made things that are going to produce sound. So the bird sings a song. God's not singing it. God just made that little creature with a, a very unique way so he can sing. The, the stream that you know, comes out of the mountain and you hear the rushing water or the, the ocean as, as it comes in, God made the elements, but that's making the sound. So even when you sing, that is not God's song, it's your song. We have to take the natural ability or the resources God gave us and do that, all right? Now, also then, let's, um, let's think of these two things with the few minutes that we have left for glory and for beauty, all right? First of all, think of, think of the glory. Remember Colossians, two different verses in chapter 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the God, to God and the Father through him. Verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Why? Because whatever you put your hand to do is artwork. And we are, we are created to tend the garden just like Adam was. And so if God has given you a carpenter talent, put your hand to it, do it heartily to the Lord. If God, if you're a teacher and a speaker, then do that. If, if you're a painter, if you're a mother, if you're a cook, you know, whatever, whatever you do. This was an old Puritan ethic, you know, that we have forgotten over the years. One of the things that made the Puritan communities, and in, in some ways the Amish communities, what they are. Because they believe that everything they put their hand to is a, a stewardship before God and must be done with my best ability. So even if you are squaring the corner on a building to put two beams together, it ought to be as square and perfect as you can get it and not sloppily done. And that's just as important as the man who tries to craft a sermon so that you can understand uh, what he's saying. All right? So Hebrews 8 and 9 and 10 also describe the earthly tabernacle, and in a number of verses in those chapters says, or even reminds you that God said to Moses, you build this tabernacle to reflect the heavenly tabernacle. So you do it as I say, I'll give you the blueprint, I'll tell you everything to do, you do it for glory and for beauty, you do it the best you can so that it mirrors the actual tabernacle that's in heaven. And they started to do that, and of course they were very uh, uh, conscious of it. And also Solomon later when he built that, built that temple. Now in, in Exodus 28, Verse, verse 29, for example, at the end of that verse says uh, that when he goeth into the holy place the, with the high priest with these garments on, for a memorial before the Lord continually. These things are a memorial before the Lord. This is your testimony. Oh, I made that garment. I sewed that hem. I dyed that color on the high priest. And in verse 30, you have at the end... Uh, before the Lord continually. And in verse 36, all the way down, uh, upon the, the, the turban and the, uh, what he wore on, his, uh, on him, and the, the uh, graven was holiness to the Lord. You know, there's an expression in Psalm 29, the beauty of holiness, remember that? 
the beauty, think of that, the beauty of holiness, the beauty of bringing glory to God. There's a certain beauty to holiness, just like there's a certain beauty if you do these things as a memorial before God. Now, we can make an idol out of anything, and when we make an idol out of it, what have we done? We have taken God's natural resource... And even though we may be a good artisan and carve something well, we have done it not at all for God's glory, and therefore it's considered idolatry. If we do something to bring ourselves credit, or if we do something to direct uh, the, the proper glory away from the creator of these things, then it's, it becomes idolatry. There's a, there's a verse over in uh, Acts 17. Remember when Paul was on Mars Hill, and he's speaking... To them and all around in Athens, I've stood on that spot. Still today, 2,000 years later, all around are all of these idols and buildings and things that the Greeks made and worshipped and so forth. So in verse 29, Paul says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold, silver, or stone, graven by the art of man's device. You can't. Uh, ascribe to something else what ought to be ascribed to God. Okay, so when you sing a song, do it both well and do it to glorify God, right? If you are a soloist in the church, anybody want to volunteer and we'll, we can see how you do? Well, really now, you know, when, when we're singing uh, or someone is singing to us or maybe playing an offertory or, you know, whatever, teaching a lesson. We, we ought to strive for both of those things, for glory and for beauty. Now, we will usually do more of one than the other. As a matter of fact, you know, too, that you have heard soloists. I'm picking on soloists because they're easy to pick on, okay? But you have heard soloists who are so full of themselves that you can't get anything out of it, but technically and musically, it's perfect, right? And I have heard soloists <laughs> who uh, are not very good singers, but you know their heart, and they're doing the best they can, right? You've heard them both. Uh, I don't know if I, if I said this before, but I, um, you know, as a pastor, uh, I think, you know, when... If someone walks into our church for the very first time, and uh, and I see them, we have to, we naturally think, oh, I wonder what they're going to think of us today. Let's see, what are we doing today? Who's singing? Who's preaching? Who's doing it? You know, that's terrible to think like that. And I have to slap myself and say, quit that. But, I, but when I pastored out in, in Colorado, I always sat on the platform. We had a platform and a pulpit and so forth, and so I could watch people come in even late and. And I remember uh, doing this, and we had a fellow in our church, George. I love him to this day. We talked on the phone a couple weeks ago. Um, George uh, kind of f pictured himself as an opera-type singer. <laughs> but they probably wouldn't have allowed him within 100 yards of the Metropolitan Opera, <laughs> I, I suppose. And when George sang... He had the, his best double-knit green pants that he had to wear. 
And, but George and his wife, Laverne, too, love the Lord. Faithful to this day. Called me two weeks ago. And so I'm talking about well over 10, 15 years ago. But called me because now he's living with his daughter in Texas and he can't find a good church to go to and it really bothers him. Okay. And so I catch myself, I'm sitting on the platform and I see a, a first-time visitor come in. And I'm looking at my program. Who's going to sing the special today? George. And I'm thinking, oh man, you know, when George sings, uh, you could go to sleep. He almost goes to sleep. <laughs> and, and so, you know, so it's one of those stre real stretch when it comes to beauty. But for the glory of God, and you know, and, and God convicts my heart, convicted my heart about that. What are you worried about what that person thinks when this man, number one, is doing the best he can for beauty and not, not afraid to use it for God's, and you know his heart that he's doing this for the glory of God. And you're worried about what somebody's going to think about this? But, you know, we get to where, even in church, we're so worried that we will sacrifice either of those two sometimes in order to be popular. There, there's a, you know, I used to get a magazine, Leadership Magazine, I don't know if you remember that. Leadership Magazine, the reason I got it is it was full of good cartoons. It had, it had these great cartoons in it. My favorite cartoon was... Uh, had a, a stage, uh, like a church stage, and a big spotlight coming down on this singer, and he or she, I forget which, had a microphone in her hand, I think it was a, a woman, in her hand, and the caption on the cartoon said, as she's, begin, you know, she's giving the introduction to her song, she says, this song means nothing to me personally, but it's a great showcase for my voice. <laughs> You know, <laughs> that's my favorite cartoon. It doesn't mean anything, but boy, can I sing. <laughs> you know, listen to this. And I've heard that all my life. So have you. So remember this. If you paint, if you have a craft, if you have a hobby, a job, you are taking God's resources and doing something with it. You are just as much an artisan as Rembrandt ever was. And you have a responsibility before God. So, strive to have glory and beauty, but as Christians, never sacrifice our purpose of glorifying God. That's for glory. Briefly then, let me just finish with beauty here. I wanted to go, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 7, as a matter of fact, go there and just end there. In 1 Kings, to your right, a few books, of course, chapter 7, Solomon is building the temple, and he's doing something very unique. When he makes this temple, he puts up two pillars at the front of it, and he names them in chapter 7 and verse 21, Jochen and Boaz, he shall establish, in it is strength. Two pillars, 27 feet high, standing at the front of the of the. Uh, of the temple, Solomon's temple, never was such a beautiful handmade building, and they do nothing. <laughs> They're there for beauty. Old Francis Schaeffer said of them, they supported no architectural weight, had no utilitarian engineering significance. 
They were there only because God said they should be there as a thing of beauty. And so this whole chapter mentions these, and it mentions Hiram in verse 13, who was the man who's going to make these and put all the decoration on these. And you read about the decoration then in the verses following. And the same thing was true of the tabernacle, uh, where the, God gave a special gift to that artist who made those kinds of things and carved all of those things. And here uh, you have the same kind of thing, and he's carving these two things. Why? Because they hold up anything? They don't hold up anything. They are there to make it beautiful. And he, God even names them and names them for that reason. So whatever we're doing is, is the same thing. You know, in the old days, they had what was called representational art. That is, up until the days of modernism, an artist would paint a tree, and it, it was considered a good picture if it looked like a tree. <laughs> you know, I try to make a stick figure look like a man, and sometimes you don't know what it is. You know, But an artist was good if he made representational art. So whatever you're painting looks good. That changed to modern art, where... Instead of the emphasis being on the thing that you are painting, the emphasis is now on the artist. So he paints a picture and it looks like nothing. And you, and you say, what is that? Well, it's, it's, it's modern art. What does that mean? It means, to me as an artist, this is what I see. I see it like this. Representational is gone. You're not trying to represent what God made any longer. You're trying to represent what you feel. Mo that's modern art. Then we went to postmodern art, where even that went out the window, and all it's designed to do is shock you and, if, and generate a feeling from you. So you have this gross type of stuff th that is called art today, and you look at it and you go, ooh, what is that? And the artist says, that's exactly what I was trying to do. See how far we've come from the old days of representational art where you did something beautiful because it represented what God made and what God has in his hand. So when we're building, we ought to build as pretty as we can. If we have music, we ought to have the, try to sing the best we can sing. If we make clothes or wear clothes, make the best you have. And, and none of us can do like the rich people can do maybe when it comes to glory and things that are nice. You can do what you can do, and God is pleased with that. So in the first part, if you bring him glory, and the second part, you do it as well as you can do it, then that will honor God, and there will be reward for that. And we need to try to remember uh, to do that, all right? So strive for glory and beauty, but as Christians, let us never make beautiful things to glorify ourselves, but rather the God who made the materials and gave us the ability to do it. Okay little lesson on art. I think it's, I find it kind of fun in the scripture. Let's end in prayer. Father, thank you for these thoughts, and now bless us as we continue our worship with you and our fellowship together throughout this morning. We'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.